Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's January 5th, 2021. Our show is Experiments in Alignment and the Persistence of the Motley Crew. We'll open with Mas Que Nada by Brazilian Sergio Mendes. This is the Justin Strauss remix from the 1989 release Arara. Mas Que Nada doesn't really have a precise English translation. It might be thought of as a challenge to an assertion. Today's show looks at social reproduction on the margins of the state, where there is a vitalizing drive to create life beyond, against, and outside of imposing limitations, and a persistence of radical sociality, a fundamental challenge to the normalized organization of life around degradation and exploitation. This vitalizing drive is what our guest Laura Harris calls the aesthetic sociality of blackness, taking an expansive notion of blackness to mean an unruly creativity and disorderly sociality. That is, everything that isn't allowed within the scope of citizenship. Harris notes that even bare life can represent an experimental outlook oriented toward developing new forms of assemblage with those around us. In her recent book titled Experiments in Exile, C.L.R. James, Helio Oetisica, and the Aesthetic Sociality of Blackness, Harris examines the organizing work of the Trinidadian C.L.R. James and the aesthetic work of the Brazilian artist Helio Oetisica and finds a way of living that is aesthetic in its orientation and inherently social and collaborative in practice. Born in 1901 in Trinidad, C.L.R. James was a political activist who was dedicated to promoting revolutionary struggles all around the world, from anti-colonial movements in Africa and Latin America to labor movements in Europe and the independent black struggles in the United States. Working largely as an historian and literary figure, James produced a number of classic texts that continue to be popular, including The Black Jacobins, A History of the Haitian Revolution, and Beyond a Boundary an autobiographical account of cricket and its political importance. Helio Oetisica, on the other hand, was a Brazilian installation artist whose radical aesthetics left a long-standing impact on the avant-garde scenes in both Brazil and the United States. Born in 1937, Oetisica developed his aesthetic sensibilities while living under a rigid dictatorship in Brazil, eventually going into self-induced exile in the United States to pursue his art. Through his work, Watasika sought to open up the reception of his art to a process of collaborative engagement, compelling his audiences to interact with his work as well as with each other. James and Watasika never met, and they worked at separate historical moments and occupied different productive spheres. But their work, when placed in dialogue, brings into relief the practices of a radical sociality and suggests how blackness, as Laura Harris engages it, can be something beyond the color of one's skin. Show producer Cole Nelson begins by asking how Harris conceives of blackness as a practice outside the frameworks of identity and biology. And now, experiments in alignment and the persistence of the Motley Crew with Laura Harris on Interchange on WFHB. begin by talking about the documents um, that led me to think about this in these terms. Um, it, as I said, I think I'm, I'm 
in part of my life as, as a cinema city scholar. And uh, many years ago, I was trying to do a cinema studies project, but I was finding that a lot of the theoretical frameworks available for thinking through film um, were not really helping me in the project I was trying to pursue, which was looking at experimental film in the Americas. So I thought, well, who else is thinking about cinema? There must be other frameworks that people are thinking through. Where would I look? So I just sort of cast a wide net, um, looking for all kinds of writing about film across the Americas. And in my kind of general reading, I came across James and Oitsika, and both of their thinking stuck with me, in part because of the ways they were trying to theorize cinema and cinema's reception within a broader context of popular art um, and and think of the sort of generative possibilities of communal reception, in part the sort of aspirations they had along those lines and part in the way their arguments sort of never really cohered or whatever it was they were pointing to, they never could show us that place. And, And the more I looked at their texts, the more strange they were also in the way they were written. They were both unfinished texts that got sort of cleaned up and edited and published, you know, under their names. As I started reading and poking around, clearly collaboratively produced. They were they were part of a set of conversations that these two folks were involved in and and meant to be extended um, by way of further conversation and collaborative writing. So both of them present these texts, which are, you know, often offered as finished has works in progress. It's absolutely not the thing that they meant to be writing and that it was supposed to be. The more I read, the more I became interested in that aspect of the text. And, and the film part sort of reappears in part, but, but I'm, I'm interested in the way that that actually, what they say about film doesn't become as interesting as the methods <laughs> through which they try to say that and the process that they imagine being carried forward through that writing. So that really led me to think about them, uh, um, to try to figure out where did this idea of writing come from? Where, what, where, what is this documenting exactly? What kind of project <laughs> is this part of? Um, so I became interested in their work in the U.S. as exile intellectuals, self-imposed exile intellectuals. Where did their thinking in some ways begin? Where did their ideas about aesthetics begin? And it struck me in my reading so much that both of them began as sort of articulators of a, of a national aesthetic in a moment in which both Trinidad and Brazil were trying to articulate the specificity of a, of a Caribbean or Trinidadian aesthetic and the specificity of a Brazilian aesthetic, but that they strayed and wandered in the midst of the, that work to the barrackyards of Spain and the favelas of Rio de Janeiro and lingered there. And in my book, I'm really arguing that they it wasn't just sort of lurking that they did, but um, through their engagements with people that they met there, a real studying of the aesthetics practices there, perhaps, but also social practices that were bound up with them. So part, they're interested in formal, spectacular performances of cricket for James, of samba for Oitasika, but also um, in their studies, they are drawn increasingly to the quotidian practices, the quotidian performances, you might say, in these spaces and in the, the aesthetics, the social dimensions, 
as well as the kind of radical politics or radical insurgency that they find inherent in these modes of social organization that are oriented both towards kind of mutual aid and you might say in self-defense. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Laura Harris, and we're discussing the work of activist C.L.R. James and artist Helio Oetisica, two figures that Harris sees as practitioners of what she calls the aesthetic sociality of blackness. In this segment, Harris ties the work of each individual to the black radical tradition, reflecting on the various alternative principles to collective living that James and Oetisica find. So I became interested in why is it that that these strange books that James and Oitasika wrote, what's the connection between that and their early studies in the barrackyards and the favelas? Those are largely marked as black working class or underclass spaces. How do we think through those spaces and what they encode and what they represent, I guess you could say. So that's part of the project is sort of locating a crucial intellectual influence, you might say, there in those spaces. And then that, for me, dovetailed with a lot of my reading in the Black radical tradition. Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism and the Terms of Order, um, Denise Ferrer de Silva's Toward a Global Idea of Race, Hortense Spiller's, all of her writing, and, and Fred Moten as well, much of his writing, um, in which all of them are trying to think through what alternative principles are there, why we locate in the black radical tradition, you might say, and how do we theorize that, right? So my question in part perhaps was how might we think of the kinds of practices, um, the, the modes of insurgency that James and Oitasika are finding in the barrackyards and the favelas, how might we think those in relation to, um, to the radical traditions of blackness that those theorists are mapping? I want to take up just briefly um, where kind of along chronological lines where you begin the historical survey of, of James and Oitasika in their, say, first encounters with the aesthetic sociality of Blackness in particular spaces, respectively in Trinidad and in Brazil, whether it be the barrackyards or in the favelas. To begin with, I'm curious what it is that, that James and Oitasika are coming into relation to what is it uh, about their relation to these spaces that they are taken by and that they are both claiming within their aesthetic works but are, are also being claimed by? What is it they are drawn to? They are drawn to collaborative modes of self-organization through which people um, invent alternative ways to live and to sustain one another. And this, I mean, I'm talking about it in very abstract terms, but in what they are specifically interested in is in, in part, again, cricket as performed by, by black players, samba as performed by, um, by primarily black dancers, and the ways in which those practices are improvised together. Part of what I'm interested in in the black radical tradition is their understanding of blackness in relation to the idea of the modern subject to the self-determining, um, self-possessed modern subject as a kind of ideal. I mean, uh, Denise Ferreira Silva writes about those two emerging together, right? The, the modern subject and the racialized, you could say, subject or other who is everything that they, that, that subject is not affectable, not self 
possessed, not self-determining. And for thinkers like Robinson, in terms of order, he thinks of that difference, I might say, as a kind of mutual incompleteness. Denise Fajardo Silva might talk about it as affectability. Spillers might think of it as a kind of a vestibularity that, that materializes in flesh that doesn't arrive at the distinction of an individuated body. These are the ways in which Blackness is, in, is cast by the European tradition, right? By European thinking um, as everything that the subject, who is also the citizen, who is also the author or who, the person capable of citizenship and authorship is not. The question that, that these authors are in a sense interested in that I am also interested in myself is what might be there that is important and useful to think? What then might we find in Blackness is part of the question they're interested in. What alternative principles, what alternative ideas about social life might we find there um, against the idea of the self-determining individual, individuated subjects who exist in relations to one another, um, particularly those relations that are, that are recognized and sanctioned by the state, whether that's um, citizenship or the nuclear family. What doesn't show up within that sort of sanctioned set of social relations? Um, what has been regulated out of those or excluded from those or, you know, in fact, criminalized within those formations? That is part of what they're interested in. And that's partly, in some ways, I guess, the starting point for my thinking about not simply Black people, but Blackness as an alternative formation that bears with it an alternative set of principles or ideals, right? What happens when you don't think of yourself as living and surviving and creating and making things separately, but alongside other people from whom you can't be disentangled and from whom you don't necessarily want to be disentangled? It's time for a break. This is Desafinado by Stan Getz and Charlie Bird off of the 1962 release Jazz Samba. This crucial and groundbreaking work was the first full-fledged Bossa Nova album ever recorded by American jazz musicians. More of Cole Nelson's interview with Laura Harris on her book, Experiments in Exile, when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today features Cole Nelson in conversation with Laura Harris about her concept of the aesthetic sociality of blackness, highlighting two disparate figures, historian and theorist C.L.R. James and installation artist Helio Watisika. 
In this segment, Harris highlights the communal practices found and theorized by James in the barrack yards of Trinidad under British colonial rule, specifically through cricket, and for Uatasica in the favelas or shantytowns of Rio de Janeiro under military dictatorship, where improvisational architecture was a necessity mothering invention. Here, aesthetic modes of collective self-organization flourish in the absence of national provision and operate against and despite the violence of the nation-state. And, and so it's in these spaces of the barrackyards and the favelas where um, this this sort of rejection from or ejection from the frameworks of, of the citizen or the modern subject or the nation state uh, kind of uh, finds some sort of accrual or accumulation of exactly this these practices of collaborative living, of sort of experimental sociality of, upon these alternative principles to the capital S subject or or to the frameworks of, of citizenship as established by, by a nation state? Well, these are spaces that are really, you might say, on the edge of the polis, right? I mean, it's tricky to call them marginal because they're not actually outside. And you can also argue that they're absolutely fundamental to the to the way the polis is formulated, right? They can't, they're, they're not in exactly excluded or separate from, but they are on the edge and they are marked as not part of the general political community, you might say, or the body of the citizenry. They are um, on the edge of that. They are already outside of that idea of political community. And they have all these improvised family formations, for example, all these improvised households. They're not organized into the recognizable units of bourgeois social life, in part because they can't, but in part because they just see greater possibility and pursue greater possibility, again, in the interests of of finding ways to live sort of against the pressure of um, that their exclusion for the most part from the social body, from social life proper, we might say entails, even if they're uh, criminalized in part for the very ways that they live. Even the architectural formations are improvised, right? And, you know, repurposed structures or they are um, invented structures with, with whatever materials one might find. Um, So they are irregular in every sense and that part not legible and in, in many ways criminalized from, you know, from the point of view of the polis proper, social relations of the citizens proper, but they are also a space of immense sort of creativity and experimentation. And that, I think, is in part what James and Oitasika are interested in, is the sense of reopening the question of how we live. And it's not divorced from questions of necessity and difficulty, So, you know, it's not some purely romantic thing, but there is an inventiveness that they are interested in there um, that manifests itself on the one hand and the way people literally construct a place to inhabit and then the ways they might share or support each other. And then also in the way they talk or the way they they move or, you know, the, the different ways that also plays out in more than simply utilitarian gestures. Right. There's also an insistence on pleasure on style, on enjoyment um, that they're interested in and the way that plays out in the aesthetic dimension of those modes of self-organization. And I, I, so I, I'm really curious to ask you about precisely this, the aesthetic dimension of, of sociality um, uh, and what exactly you mean with that qualifier because I, it's, it seems to be something very specific and, and um, you note the uh, particularly the architectural practices of kind of experimenting and, and improvising with various materials to 
simply construct a space to inhabit. So can you take us through what exactly you mean by, by an aesthetic sociality as opposed to just sort of broadly a, a general sociality of sorts? I think it in part comes from James and Oichisika's initial interest in cricket and samba, which they really talk about in aesthetic terms. So aesthetics is the starting point for their interest in these milieus and in the kinds of activities they find there. What James finds in the barrack yards he is linked for him to, to cricket, to the aesthetics of cricket. And what Oichisika finds in the favelas is linked to what he sees in samba. Uh, it's through their eyes in the sense that I'm attuning to the modes of living that emerge there as as not being divorced from questions of form or style or sensuality, right? If we think of aesthetics as related to the senses. And so when I, I guess, kind of words that help me think through the doubleness of that for them is uh, might be composition, organization, assembly, which are social practices, but they also have an aesthetic resonance if we think of them as in relation to the kinds of ways we usually think and talk about art, a making, a creating there that has a sound, it has a feel, it has a sensual dimension to it, um, in addition to just being a kind of practical social ordering of things, right? And that's really, really hugely important to them. That's really part of what first draws them there in the first place, I think, is that dimension of it. And, and that carries forward in all their work, but so does the modes of organization that make that possible, through which those forms emerge, right? And to which they're inextricably tied. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Laura Harris, and we've been discussing the work of activist C.L.R. James and artist Helio Oetisica. In this segment, Harris discusses the way in which James and Oetisica both conducted their work in collaboration with others, focusing our attention on the continual process of creative production, rather than the individual works or products that each individual made. That sort of link between aesthetics and sociality, where form and composition become both inextricable from thinking about aesthetics, uh, while also thinking about different kind of social relations, I think it, it is an interesting place to then sort of situate in the actual practices and the works that um, Oichisika and James strive to produce. You give this the name of the the undocuments, and it's this kind of proliferation of of work where what seems to be on display is not any particular finished project, but the actual process of kind of coming to various forms and experimenting with various forms. I'd like to ask about this sort of how this aesthetic sociality, the dimensions of aesthetic sociality, kind of imbricate upon the work of James and Oichisika, especially at once they are in the United States and kind of separate themselves from this kind of citizen participation of the author, the subject. Well, if you think about the normative, you might say, or regular modes, social dimensions of authorship or artists, you think of the, the individual writer alone in his room or as part of a, you know, a collective national subject, the national writer, same with the artist, the individual artist, um, a painter, for example, which is where Oitasika's work begins um, you know, alone before the canvas, transmitting his ideas, or part of, again, a collective subject, uh, Brazilian art, um, for example, a national art project. 
those are the starting points for them and thinking about their careers, their young people imagining great futures for themselves. And when they go to the barrackyards and the favelas and they observe the kinds of aesthetic practices there and that most interest them, which are also, I would add, you know, uncontained within specific works, they think, okay, how can I appropriate this in my work? Um, in the usual, all the usual ways that people do. Um, and they try to imbibe that and, and to inscribe it in their own individually authored projects. What I'm trying to argue is in the process of doing that, they lose a little bit of control. Um, that the narration of Minty Alley, which is the novel that James writes, having visited um, and really taking notes in the barrackyards for a long time, the dialogue in some ways exceeds the the frame of the narrator. You know, the the uh, who is both a figure in the book and is a stand-in for James. There's a way in which what perhaps James may have felt a kind of um, overtaking of the narrator or the authorial voice by the voice of these people that he's. Uh, bringing in here. And in Oitsika's case, he produced a series of artworks which were inspired in part by the architecture of the fellows and the costumes of the Sambistas that he was studying. And he thought, okay, I'm going to bring these folks with me to the museum and they're going to help me demonstrate how to use these things. And when they try to go, they are ejected from the museum and, um, and they set up a a performance of these works in which his place as author, recognized author, recognized artist of these works is somehow um, sort of displaced by the performance that they, you could say, give, but that they also incite in the sense that other people are enter into it alongside them. And this carries forward further, as I discuss in the book, in the ways that other people take up the space that he opened, that they each opens in their work to sort of tell them what to do or to take over the projects that they begin and I guess what interests me is the way in which James and Oitsika don't shut that down. They don't recontain it. They don't edit that out in their thinking about the work. They don't restart and say, okay, let me start again and do it right. They say, okay, how do I make this happen again? How This was the best part, uh, the part where I was displaced here, the part where this radical self-organization overtakes my own point of view as author or artist this is the more generative thing and how do I keep doing this? And that is what I think that they're trying to continue in their work in the U S of course, once they get mixed up in these things, they become less appealing to the other folks involved in the formation of a national aesthetic, right? <laughs> there are, I guess there are ways that one might talk about the barrackyards or the favelas that might be acceptable within, you know, you could cast those in folkloric terms, for example, but that's not how they were doing it. They were thinking of these as a kind of radical force. So that makes them sort of at odds with the project of forming a national aesthetic that they had once thought themselves to be central to. And so they end up thinking, along with the general pressures they faced under a crown colony in Trinidad, under the dictatorship that begins in Brazil, they find themselves at odds with those contexts and and feel that they need to leave in order to follow through on the ideas that they arrive at, you could say, or that take over their works <laughs> and, and work through them. How do they figure out how to do this more? How do they figure out how to continue this? And so they end up through these kind of circuitous exiles, both go to England first, I think, but end up in the U.S. at different times, and they never met. But they both end up seeking out in the United States 
where else might I find activity like this? Where do I look? How do I find it? And they both, because they are living in the U.S., arrive on official visas to for official business and then overstay their welcomes and live on um, undocumented and somewhat underground. They, they have limited access to the sort of wider world of radical activity in the U.S. Um, and end up working together with other people, who, whomever they find and come across, to try to build these mechanisms or apparatuses or machines, you might even say, for creating opportunities for collective and collaborative work that might unfold in this way. Hey, hey, hey you ready or Ready for what? Ready for what? Hey, 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 it's time for another break. This is the brand new Lucky Diamond Horseshoe Club by David Rudder. Off of the release Zero from 2000. Born in Belmont, Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago, Rudder began singing with a Calypso band at a young age and in his teens sang backup vocals in a Calypso tent run by Lord Kitchener while earning his living as an accountant with the Trinidad Bus Company. More on experiments in exile on the radical practices of CLR James and Helio Oetesica when Interchange returns. This is a tale about the other side, of the other side of town. The kind of place where decent people look left stare, then spit on the ground. The kind of joint where the very point is that any number could play. That's the place they say when the preacher tells Jesus, go let me catch you in day. Now this girl they call Sheila from South, but don't you mean and she read up she mouth. Smoking a cigarette, she's standing up by. Welcome back to Interchange. Episode producer Cole Nelson discusses the radical practices of activist C.L.R. James and artist Helio Huatesica with author Laura Harris. In this segment, Harris expands on how the condition of exile, which both James and Huatesica experienced while in the United States, is not only an individual condition, but is related to a broader condition of life in the Americas in the wake of vicious colonialism, displacement, and dispossession. Along these lines, Harris moves on to explore the differences and commonalities between what it means to be rooted in a place, position, or idea versus being exiled and estranged from familiar terrain. A old criminal they call, walking dead was stepping through the door. In room number three, the jukebox was playing, call your mother, come to my command, man, and a fella named Singh. It is, I think, a curious thing that the two of them not only land in the United States to kind of proliferate the work, but also New York played a very important role um, for the two of them, both in terms of, I think, influencing them, but also, uh, I know at least in the sake of C.L.R. James, kind of disgusting him, the intellectual culture was very stifling. So it's curious that there is this trajectory that leads both 
individuals uh, to expand upon this work, kind of in, in similar spaces. I guess that's a good place to ask about the role of exile in particular, uh, what compelled the two individuals to partake in these experiments uh, furthermore while, while in exile. Because, as you know, they're first in contact with the aesthetic sociality of Blackness, various forms of collective living, so to speak, right at home, you know, in Brazil, in in Trinidad. So it's a curious note to me that they, they both seek to explore this further through self-imposed exile, through the practice of kind of being undocumented and below or underneath the practices of citizenship. Perhaps it's too simple to say that they simply abandoned their former aspirations to being great authors and artists and imbibed this idea of having their work be a medium for other social forces beyond them. It's probably more apt to say that they remained ambivalent about that. They left in part to pursue professional ambitions and also in the sense that they found that the ways they were pursuing them were not necessarily welcome when the places they were at, not in equal or necessarily even parallel ways. Um, You know, it's totally different context. In the Crown Colony um, that James is in, he was situated differently than Wojciechowska was in the context of a dictatorship. So I don't mean to collapse them at all. But they are are at odds with the sort of general national projects, I would say. Wojciechowska is in danger of basically being arrested, as other friends of his has. And James, when he goes back after independence, is put under house arrest. So they remain at odds somehow in those spaces with the project of natural, national culture, building a national culture as in the ways that it's sanctioned, at least by the state. So partly they leave to pursue both their professional ambitions, but then also to pursue these experiments. When they get to the United States, they are embedded first in professional contexts. And, you know, James is in the revolutionary political party world and Wojciechowski is in the art world. So they are sort of properly situated when they first arrived. Um, it's only after that they drift off. But I, I'm interested in thinking of them as exiles, even though they're not, you know, they're self-imposed exiles, in part because they carry with them this interest in Blackness um, and black, the aesthetic sociality of Blackness. They bring their studies of that as a aesthetic and social and intellectual tradition with them, and that remains a crucial force within their work. I'm also interested in thinking exile more broadly as perhaps a central starting point, one might say, for life in the Americas after the fact of, after it becoming the Americas, after, after no longer being Turtle Island or Abiyayala, you know, when it becomes the Americas at the moment where settler colonialism and slaveocracies begin to remake these places, uh, displacement and exile are just a central component of these spaces and certainly of, of the kind of spaces that barrackyards and favelas are made up with people who are often displaced many times over. As a side note, in doing some research for this interview, I came across a moment in Grace Lee Boggs's autobiography where comparing Jimmy Boggs to C.L.R. James, she says, Jimmy Boggs was different from um, all of them, including CLR, he always stayed close to his roots and never lived in exile. And I thought it was an interesting way to put that dichotomy in stark focus. But it seems you're very explicitly uh, doing kind of, or focusing on on the opposite, whereas Jimmy Boggs um, is praised by 
gracefully for you know for for staying close to his roots clr expansively explored and experimented and experimented particularly in exile uh and it's that double meaning of the title of your book where it's undertaking experiments while in exile but also experimenting with the condition of exile that is that is sort of one is is found within i'm not sure if you have any any thoughts on this sort of dichotomy of exile and roots of of gracely boggs but i thought it was kind of a curious note uh, in reading alongside your book that is a way of framing exiles in opposition to rootedness i think that the sense of displacement a fundamental displacement is central to the experience of the americas and to to much of the black radical tradition um, differently perhaps than indigenous traditions um, who have claimed a crucial sort of almost social or kinship relationship to certain land and territory. So I guess I'm not offering it as, as a, either as a choice. This is the better choice as opposed to that as Grace Lee is offering it in the opposite terms. Jimmy Boggs was better because he was rooted and stayed close to home Everybody else was in exile, a floater. I'm less, I think, trying to advocate than I am marking what can be learned from this experience of displacement and from from writing it in some ways or from you know living in it. I think that you know James and Oitasika's experiences as undocumented people is is sort of also important to their thinking about citizenship and and um, and how to live and what participation. <laughs> in social life or or one's um or or what self-organization might be when not reduced to the terms that citizenship so narrowly circumscribes for us you're listening to interchange on wfhb our guest is laura harris in this segment harris utilizes the figuration of the motley crew sailors from every geography finding labor solidarity in the middle of the ocean and extends it to encompass formations of blackness exemplified through the activist practices of CLR James and the collective creativity of an Watasika nest installation. I wanted to ask you about the Motley Crew, the sort of social formation of the Motley Crew and, uh, and kind of the lineage that you're pulling that from and what you're doing to expand it to incorporate figures like CLR James and uh, Oitasika. Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker wrote a book called The Many-Headed Hydra, um, in which they argue that in the 17th, 18th, and early 19th century, across the Atlantic, there was radical or insurgent activity everywhere, all around you, um, involving people who crossed, in formations that crossed racial, generational, and gender lines. So, they are interested in this moment um, in the early Americas, you might say, but they see it as an Atlantic formation, writing from the perspective um, of Britain as well. A, a moment in which there is there aren't these divisions between different forms of radical activity where there's revel- revolt and rebellion <laughs> and refusal and radical modes of self-organization happening all around and converging in these kind of unexpected and crazy ways. For them, one of the key figures that they articulate that I find useful to me is this um, idea of the Motley Crew, which is a particular formation they mark, emerges first under the lash, you might say, on ships, for example, or on plantations where people are often displaced, people are thrown together um, and forced to find ways to work together. 
they have to find ways to work as a team or a gang or, you know, a crew. And they're often thrown together deliberately as people with different languages or different backgrounds in order to, um, to make it difficult to form lines of solidarity. They have the task in some ways of figuring out how to organize themselves to carry out, to go fetch um, wood, firewood, or to go pick something on a plantation. And they say that these groups, some of these groups, reorganize and repurpose themselves and shift their orientation towards, um, and the examples they point to often are um, pirates, what might be one example, or um, a rebel formation on a, in, in a plantation, for example, what groups that reorganize and repurpose themselves to different ends, often in revolt. What interested me about that was the ways in which that model of insurgency, of a kind of motley mixed insurgency, first of all, gave me a long history in which to think James and Oitasika's interests Right, their interest in revolt and in their involvement in these kind of motley, cross-racial, cross-gender, cross-sexual, cross-generational formations, and also their interest in the barrackyards. So part of Leinbaum Redeker's argument is that um, in the middle of the 19th century, you get a kind of rigid imposition of new modes of racialization that really divide the members of the crew. You get white national subjects who are invited into the fold of the citizenry on the one hand, and then black foreigners and criminals, right, who, who don't belong. And their argument is that, alas, the Motley crew is essentially disabled by that. It's essentially um, foreclosed as a possibility by those rigid modes of racialization in which people no longer see common cause amongst themselves, and that those become the the modes of organization, of political organization from here on out. You get white working class political mobilization, and you get black diasporic or pan-African political mobilization on the other. And and this opportunity or this glorious moment for them um, is now lost. I found their argument to be totally enabling in the sense of imagining this kind of formation in which people worked collectively and collaboratively. I mean, they may not have come together on purpose. They may be thrown together because of the situation that they find themselves in, but the ways in which they find to work together towards other ends, against the grain of the kind of modes of power that have displaced them, that have put them under the lash in the first place, that have assigned them these tasks. And it's incredibly enabling in that way, um, in ways of thinking about collaboration and self-organization along those lines. Where I differ with them, I guess, where my argument would diverge is in the moment they see the the end. And what I'm arguing is that what we see in the barrack yards and the favelas, or rather what James and Oitasika see there, is the active remnants of this motley crew, which blackness, in in that it doesn't reduce everything to this individuated, self-determined citizen subjects that are marked or unmarked as white is the place where there's room for a kind of motliness to persist. It's time for our final break. This is Influenca do Jazz, off of the 1965 release The Incomparable Bolasetti. Born in Rio de Janeiro, guitarist Bolasetti's name means seven ball. In snooker, the seven ball is the only black ball on the table. Stay with us for more on the persistence of the Motley crew in the barrack yards and favelas, and union halls and artist lofts, when Interchange returns. 
Welcome back to Interchange. In this segment of Experiments in Alignment and the Persistence of the Motley Crew, episode producer Cole Nelson and guest Laura Harris continue with the idea of Motley Crew as it was devised by historians Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker in their book The Many-Headed Hydra. The Motley Crew marks a form of association that is developed out of necessity, whereby disparate groups band together, despite their differences, to contend against being marginalized by racial capitalism. Harris finds motley crews assembled and sustained in the barrackyards of Trinidad and the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, displaying modes of experimental living that C.L.R. James and Helio Oetisica attempt to develop into an aesthetic practice. formations that James and Oitsika are attracted to, those collaborative modes of um, making things and doing things together that they attune to, are perhaps carryovers of that kind of radical self-organization that Leinbaugh and Rediger mark. Um, and that also is a way of accounting for how James and Oitsika might belong together, right? Because I'm interested in these two texts. The starting point from my study is being interested in these two texts by people who have literally nothing to do each other with each other. And I've spent, I don't know how many times answering the question, did they ever meet? No, they never met. <laughs> you know, one is, as I say in the very beginning, finally, of my book, you know, one, James is Afro-Trinidadian, um, straight guy who comes to, lives in the U.S. mostly in the 40s and early 50s. Oitasika is a gay white man from Brazil who comes to the U.S. mostly in the 70s. Those are the stays that I'm interested in. They don't have anything to do with each other, one might say. They don't fall, They don't ever cross paths in any conventional histori- historical study. What I'm partly trying to argue is if we engage in the experiment of aligning them, what other formations might come into view? If we, we could situate them within the history of writers in Trinidad or the Pan-African tradition in James's case, we could situate Oitasika within the tradition of thinking about artists in Brazil or conceptualism, global conceptualism. But if we put them together, what formation comes into view that could account for them? What does it allow us to think? And in part, I'm arguing that it allows us to think about the Motley crew as a longer living set of practices, you could say, or form, I guess formation. And also it forces us to recognize that its persistence is, assumes many forms. Where does it live? It lives in places that we might think of as black, but that are also motley. Where does it persist? It persists in practices that we might think of as aesthetic, but that are also maintain these radical ideas about self-organization. With the case, at, at least of James, he quite explicitly situates himself in relation to these sort of historical formations of the motley crew with his, with his book, Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways. He explicitly is interested in how the Motley crew kind of forms and expresses these uh, alternative social organize, self-organizing practices as, you know, as, as one of his influences. Well, I have a question that sort of uh, implicates you potentially. I want to ask you about you as the author of a monograph and sort of how you situate yourself in relation to the ideas that you're kind of identifying in James and Oichisika. I have my own sort of thoughts and suggestions of how you're kind of uh, dissolving this notion of 
the author, at least in how it relates to academic writing. And it's one of the practices that you make use of is extensive quotations from the two figures and kind of their associated uh, collaborators. And so in some ways, they, the two of them help you wrote this book um, in more ways than one. Uh, but I'm curious what your thoughts are, at, you know, in, in relation to this practice of authorship. Well, part of what James and Oitsuseka do in their own writing is compile and align things, right? To seek correspondences, um, in James's case, and, and associations, um, I guess you might say, for Oitsuseka. There's a lot of sort of encyclopedic gestures. Well, you know, let's put everything I've read or everything I'm thinking about together in one text. Um, that's part of it. The other part is, as, as I've alluded to, is them saying, now you take it and, and transform it, reader. You insert your own comments, uh, rewrite this text, take it from me. But in some ways, that's part of what I'm doing. I mean, maybe to a fault sometimes where I feel like I overquote, but in part, I really wanted to align and show the relationship between those two in order to make this argument. Um, sometimes people would say, well, you haven't stressed the differences. I was like, well, that's because I'm usually fighting the battle of just insisting to bear with me while I try to tell you the parallels or the, the resonances between them. So there is a fair amount of just aligning things, I think, you know, taking a piece here and a piece there. So I'm highlighting things that connect and not highlighting as many things that might, that other authors might take in a different direction. So that's part of the project. I, I throw in at the end that I invite anyone to take and do with it what they will in the spirit of James and Oitasika. In some ways, I was trying to outline, you might say, or to mark the traces of a tradition that I might consider myself part of. You know, what would I claim as my own intellectual predecessors? You know, where would I belong? If, if that's one of the questions for James and Oitsuseka is this question of belonging, where would I belong? This was me trying to map something that I did feel like would be a tradition that I would claim as the basis for my own intellectual work. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Guest Laura Harris details how CLR James and Helio Huetasica create and proliferate what she calls forms of contact, developing collaborative projects and forming an aesthetic sociality of living. In situating these two figures alongside each other, you are able to have a view that that produces these really kind of bizarre uncanny similarities and resemblances between the two they they both kind of come to particular ideas uh and and practices that are quite shockingly similar these kind of forms of contact that that develop social relations that express the aesthetic sociality of blackness the importance of contact as being sort of the practice of james and oitasigo and you situate this theoretically, but then, of course, go into both of their their works and suggest how they they enact these forms of contact and seek out contact in this way. So maybe if you if you can give us a sense of what exactly you mean in terms of contact and then how this plays out in their work. Maybe this goes back to the question you were asking about home earlier. You know, there is something about exile, about the, the non-ease with which one would assume embeddedness and belonging in some established formation that is part of what propels 
a lot of the things that, that James and Oitasika are interested in and are the, the, themselves become engaged in. Entry into that comes in part for them by way of contact with people that they're not really, they don't really initially have anything to do with. They're leading their lives as precarious lower middle class or, you know, stable upper middle class artists and authors. It's contact in some ways with the aesthetic sociality of blackness that they encounter in the practices they study in um, the barrackyards and favelas that sort of throws them in directions they did not expect. People, again, are in the barrackyards or in the favelas because they've been, they've migrated, been forced to migrate or because they've been displaced from other places. Um, So it often brings together, um, even those spaces are marked as black, those spaces are quite mixed and um, bringing together all kinds of different folks. So aspect of contact becomes important for them in thinking about political possibility, right? And that's also part of what Line von Rediger note is fundamental to the Motley crew uh, as this repeating formation is that often people are thrown together deliberately from different languages and traditions and backgrounds in order to block the usual modes of solidarity that might emerge. Contact becomes a crucial thing for them. And it's one of the first things they try to figure out how to do in the United States. On the one hand, James arrives and is welcomed by the Trotskyite parties as a member of the party. And uh, Oitasika is, you know, receives a Guggenheim grant and is part of exhibitions and is in the art world. Um, But they're looking beyond that because they are thinking that that self-enclosed world is not um, where they see the kinds of things happening that they're interested in. What James and Oitasika are interested in is in linking their practices with other folks. And that's in some ways what James institutionalizes in the collectives that he forms and in the independent organization and newspaper he forms with his collaborators. Um, The political party seemed narrowly construed and self-enclosed. And so for James, it was critical to, um, to work with collaborators to found an organization that would um, seek out and bring in other people with other organizational principles and ideas, right? What ideas did black workers, black wildcat strikers have to bring to the organization? How might that relate to what was happening in the Hungarian revolutions, right? You know, for James, it was an organ, a newspaper that literally put alongside each other um, stories about what was happening in Ghana with stories about a runaway teenager in Detroit. How do we see correspondences, make connections, um, expand our ideas about organization and self-organization by way of putting them in contact with other ideas that are different. So within the Trotskyite party, he and Grace Lee Boggs and um, Raya Dunayevskaya and many others come together and form a dissident faction. They later relocate to Detroit alongside the auto industry where they um, are interested in what would an organization look like that was not led by a professional vanguard, but would that would emerge in contact with these other forms of radicalism that are already in force beyond the party. Oitsusika is interested in what lies beyond the art world. You know, what if the art world um, and its exhibitions and its museums, um, what happens if you go up to the South Bronx and look at the kinds of activities teenagers are engaged in up there? For Oitsuzika, he used his lofts to build these kind of sensuous structures, um, which these that he called nests, which were um, where he invited friends to hang out with him and to uh, listen to music and have sex, um, among other things. 
And that became a mode of, again, inviting people into the very space that he worked in order to expand the work, to to think, to, to disrupt the, the way of working that might be, again, enclosed in the art world and the sort of limited social networks of the art world. And, and you can see in his diaries and his notes and in some of his writing that I record, conversations that start in these sensual encounters, one might say, end up being the starting point for things that he writes and the experiments that he that he writes that he puts together and that, and then passes on in this text that he that he unfolds. So so the organization and the organ or newspaper that James produces and the nests that that Oitsuka produces totally different structures on the one hand. They're not necessarily immediately related, but both interested in opening the closures of the sort of networks that they circulate in, the Revolutionary Political Party and the art world, to infiltration, to undoing, to rewriting, to remaking by all kinds of folks. That's our show. We'll close with Tukre SK, off of the 1958 release Cal Jader's Latin Concert. Cal Jader was an American Latin jazz musician who primarily played the vibraphone. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri to touring Swedish-American vaudevillians. And perhaps you recognized Vince Guaraldi playing during our ID breaks. That was the opening to Ginza Samba, performed with Bolasete on guitar. Thanks to Laura Harris for joining us to discuss her book, Experiments in Exile, C.L.R. James, Helio Watasika, and the Aesthetic Sociality of Blackness, published by Fordham University Press. Cole Nelson produced today's conversation, and I'm your host, Doug Storm. I edited and mixed the program. Cade Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.